And we welcome you to the program on this Friday on 760 WJR. Mitch Album, Kenny Brown. Hello, hello. Kevin O'Neill, we have a, uh, a smaller cast today. A lot of people are off. Uh, however, we're, we don't mind because we're going to be doing something a little unusual for this first hour. Normally, we take you through the news and we go on a bunch of different stories and we have a lot of bits and all the rest of it. But I want you to spend a few minutes with us, if you will. If you're in your car, you're headed home for the weekend. I think what you're about to hear is going to be a story that is extremely inspirational may even change your viewpoint on life if you listen carefully to it. I've heard it once before, and I wanted all of you to get the chance to hear it. I want to say hello to Ronnie and Felicia Waters, who are sitting in the studio here with us. Ronnie, hi. Hello, hello. Felicia, hi. Hello. That's also served as a mic check. <laughs> uh, so, Ronnie, you can pull your mic a lot closer to you because you're a little soft. Pull it right up uh, until you're bumping your nose uh, against so you, it. You want me to swallow it, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Kevin, will you help him just yeah, get a little closer sure, there? Sure. So why are Ronnie and Felicia Waters here? Well, uh, Ronnie, when he was 17 years old, was convicted of a crime to life without the possibility of parole at age 17 and probably never thought that he would be sitting in a radio studio having a conversation. Spent 40-some years in prison. Felicia, who knew him as a, literally as a child, uh, and they were childhood sweethearts, stayed true to him. They got married during that time. They're married now. And their story is quite incredible about forgiveness about learning lessons in life about love and i want you to hear a little bit of it so ronnie why don't you start by telling me about you and felicia when you were just kids in you know i don't even know if it was high school i think it was uh, grade school wasn't it when you first set eye on, eyes on her was it grade school you don't have yeah. to, you don't yeah, have to was, whisper um, <laughs> oh, okay. i was to say i can i can start okay go ahead tell us <laughs> well um, my parents owned, a, they purchased a store back in 1967 in Pontiac. Um, this was maybe a couple weeks before the, um, riots. So, um, growing up, I worked in the store as a kid. Back in 1972, um, I come from elementary school, came to the store and my job was to wait on the children in the store. And back then, they had a thing called penny candy. It was actually mm, a penny yeah, for the candy. That. Sure. So I'm telling my age now. <laughs> so it was my responsibility to wait on the children as they came in during the day. You being a child yourself. Being a child myself. I was seven years old. Um, one particular day, uh, this 10-year-old boy came in, and he had a dime. And he came in and he said, well, I have a dime, but if you give me a couple extra pieces of candy, one day I'll marry you. And being <laughs> What a the, deal. <laughs> being the seven-year-old that I was at that time, my response was, yuck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but I still gave him the, the candy because, you know, we were, we were friends. So this is my... Um, kind of my initial meeting with Ronnie. Um, he lived in the neighborhood right down the street from our store. Right. Uh, time went on. He ended up moving. They moved the, moved around a little bit, so he moved away after a couple years. Um, I didn't see him again 
until I was about 14 or 15 years old. And this was in high school. He ended up moving um, to a place where we ended up going to the same high school. So that's our initial meeting. Okay. So you're in high school. Mm -hmm. How would you describe yourself as a kid when you were in high school? In high school, um, aspiring athlete, um, pretty pretty good kid, depending on who you ask. Um, But if you ask the wrong person, they would probably describe me best, you know, because in the streets I was um, into a lot of petty crimes and just um, no mentorships and just completely out of control. But what was your what was your background? You know, your mother, father in the house, uh, a lot of yeah. siblings. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, my mother was in the house. Definitely. Um, she um, divorced my father when I was around three or four. We were living in um, Tennessee at the time. Okay. And she moved the family to Pontiac looking for a job in the factories, you know, some way of, um, of upgrade. Sure. And common story. Yeah, common story. Only thing that um um her father has stayed up here and he convinced her to come, saying that he had space for us to live in until um we we got on our feet. But the space that he had to live in was for him and his wife. Um it was about it was very small. So there wasn't really room for your family. It was no room for the family. Would you say you were poor? Is it a fair word? I'd say we were, as they say, dirt poor. Got it. You know, we didn't have a car. We we had the bare essentials, you know, just um, a roof over our head and heat and running water. So like a lot of kids in that kind of situation and in those years and in the Pontiac area, outside of school you fell into some various things, stuff you yeah, shouldn't have been in. Definitely. Um, the um, area that we moved into was um at the time I didn't know. I thought I was in paradise. This was a um just adventure after adventure, but it was a very um beat down area, um very crime infested area and and for a kid like me with with no supervision, there was so many things to get into. So so many that I just I mean, it was a venture for me. You know, I would see crimes happening right before me, and it was like the most exciting things that um, you could imagine, you know. And I never knew um, that this was dysfunctional. This wasn't normal, you know, because that was the only experience that I ever had in life. So I thought, I really didn't think about it, but if you were to ask me, I would say, well, everybody's neighborhoods are like this, isn't it? But sure. Yeah, it was um, well. What is it? What does a kid know? But what he's seen, right? So what you saw was poverty. What you saw was crime. Right. What you saw was kids who you know ran around, and you ran around right. with some bad apples. Let's say, yeah. Uh, still, to age seventeen, hmm. if I remember your story correctly, you had never fired a gun or owned a gun. Oh no, um, never, never really. Um, I think I touched. Uh, um, some shotguns before, and I may have fired a shotgun, but I had never fired a pistol, never um, touched a pistol, knew in nothing about right. pistols until, know? until yeah, the night that um, I committed the crime that sent me to prison for the rest of my my life. So literally, the first time you touched a gun, the first time a pistol was was 
the worst thing that ever happened to you and the worst thing that ever happened to the people that you committed the crime on. Definitely. Um, yeah. Um, Tell us what happened. Well, um, when I moved to this new neighborhood that I moved to, um, I learned I was introduced to a new set of friends. And the people that I were dealing with, I didn't think that they were as sophisticated in, or streetwise as the people that I that I lived with on the, on the east side. Mm-hmm. So these people used to come to me for leadership, for ideas, for for how do you do this? Or, you know, I thought I was, I was a leader, you know, and they looked up to me because of. You were a little tougher. Yeah, I was a little tougher. Even though I never um, carried a gun, you know. But But you were tougher than they were. Back in in these days, you know, it wasn't as prevalent as it is today for for young people to carry guns around like that. So this was back in 1980. So. They looked up to me because I knew how to get away with a lot of petty crimes and and things that, you know. Yeah. And how did you end up at that drive-in that um, night? On on weekends, um, it was five of us, five boys who were at that drive-in with me. And on weekends, it was pretty much that same crew of individuals who would um, hang out. And we would ride around the city of Pontiac looking for adventures, looking for things to do, looking for anything that um, basically we seen a crowd, you know, and find some excitement. You know, we would we would drink beer and sometimes smoke marijuana and we just hang out looking mm-hmm. for adventures. And when we went to the drive in, this was everyone knew that this was the last um uh, destination for us, you know, because the um the guy who owned the car, he didn't want to go to drive in. He would say, nothing happening. I'm about to go home. We could somebody convinced him it was me, some one of us convinced him, hey, let's make a stop at this drive in. And we didn't never drive the car into the drive in. There was a hole in the fence of the drive in. And we could park the car outside this hole. And then sneak in. And then yeah, and not have to pay. Right. And how did you, you had a gun on you at this point, on mm-hmm. that day. Why? Why'd you have a gun? You said you never held a gun before. Why'd you have a gun that right. night? Right, Um The um the person who owned the gun, his name was Michael Holmes. He had uh, an arsenal of different guns. He had pistols and shotguns and and just an arsenal of different guns. Right. They used to do B&Es throughout the city and... That's what they were still guns. Right. And whenever we would hang out, one of us would probably have a gun on us at for that particular night of hanging. So that night was your turn? That night, um, I said I asked, could I carry a gun? And they laughed because nobody I never had made that request before and nobody had never seen me with a gun or anything. And he told me dumb, yeah. Let him carry Marvin. He told um, the guy who... Marvin's the name of the gun. Yeah, Marvin is the name of the gun. He, Why did they call it Marvin? He named guns um, different things for different reasons, but they called this gun Marvin because it was the weakest gun that he had. You know, I was told that Marvin was just a little bit more powerful than a BB gun, yeah. and that was the worst what thing. What kind of gun actually was it? It was a little a twenty two twenty two um, pistol. 
think it was. So um, you have this twenty two pistol. Mm-hmm. You crawl through with your friends to a fence mm-hmm. in a drive-in, mm-hmm. not thinking about using the gun or anything like that. You're just looking for fun, um, messing around. I, I did have plans on using the gun. I didn't have plans on shooting anybody. What was your plan to use the gun? I don't know. It was going. I had. I know that when he gave me the gun, there was five bullets in the gun, and and I knew that I was going to find five targets. You know, I, I think I shot one at a street light, one at a stop sign, one at um, in the air or something to make everybody run. You know, before we got to the. To but the you never intended in. to fire it at a human being. I never intended to fire it at a human being. So what happened when you came at up? this drive-in? That it didn't anything didn't even enter my mind that I would do what I did. So tell us what happened when you approached this one particular car mm-hmm. with a couple, mm-hmm. uh, a middle-aged couple, I think, or younger couple. Yeah, they were um, a younger couple. They were in their late twenties. Their names. The name was um, Joseph. Purcelli and Deborah Ann Purcelli was in the car. You didn't know them. You had no connection to them whatsoever. I didn't know them. I've never seen them before. And I'm actually, I still have never seen jo- uh, Joseph, jo- Deborah Ann Purcelli. Right. I've seen um, Joseph before, but so I, to this day, I, 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 I still don't know how she looked. You end up in the area of their car because... Someone asks, one of the guys in your group asks them if they have a light for a cigarette, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it happened um, when, after hanging out at drive-in for a period of time, the owner of the car said he was about to leave. And he said, I'm out of here. And whenever he decided to leave, if you wasn't in the car when he started up and left, then you would be left. So, um the word got around. I was, we kind of split up at the drive-in. It was three over here and and myself and Michael Hone. We were at the, the far back part of the concession stand. And word got to us that um, Jesse was leaving, the driver of the car. So we were pulling up the back. They were in the front, okay? And as we went out towards the hole, um, one of the um, people in the first three, asked for a light. I could see him come up to the car and he asked for a light. I'm told that was um, Richard Austin, okay, Um, asked for a light. And and then I could see him walking away without a light. So I would assume that um, the driver said, I can't help you or something of that nature. They were a white couple? They were. And and your whole gang was black? whole gang was black. I can understand totally why someone would not want to open their car to five teenagers, you know, black, white, or whatever color, you know, at a dark um, drive-in. They were sitting, they were parked um, further back than everybody else at the drive-in. So, you know, they wanted privacy or whatever to be back there. So what was your reaction when you saw, you know, one of your friends get denied uh, to roll down the window? You got angry. Um, At at first, I didn't have a real reaction, you know. When he he said that he, you know, he made a motion that he couldn't get a light, I didn't have a reaction. But as I was pulling up the back, walking towards the, um, the hole in the fence, I saw in the dark a lit cigarette, you know, the reflection of a lit c- cigarette 
it illuminated in the dark. And instantly, I knew what I was going to do with the gun. Which I, was? Which was, I was going to fire at the window. I did not intend for the window to break. And I know that sounds incredible, how you can stand um, three or four feet away, um, pointing gun directly at a person's head, pull the trigger, and not expect that person to get hit. But that's my story. I did not plan on anyone being hit. My experience with this gun was that when I seen it, used to have um, abandoned cars in the owner of the gun's um, yard, and he would fire the gun at cars and different targets and stuff. This particular gun that we call Marvin, because it was weak. It was a kid in, in the neighborhood who was, we called him Starving Marvin because he was really skinny, you know, and weak. And that was the gun was kind of so, the version of that. Yeah. So, so there you are outside this window. Mm-hmm. You said a few things to this driver, like, why didn't you, you know, why didn't you give us a... When when I got to the car, it like, um, I said, you said you didn't have a light, you know, and you got a light. And instantly in my immature mind, I figured out that you deserve to have some sort of punishment. And in my mind, I said, I'm finna scare the life out of him. I was going to shoot that gun, and I thought that gun was going to do what it always done, just maybe fracture the window, spider the window, but it never, ever went all the way through a window of, of a car. Except this time it did. This time it did. It went through the window of the it car. Um, and what did that bullet actually do? That bullet hit the window and... At that time, you know, um, if you know anything about drive-ins, is you have to put the speaker in the window, and the window is not rolled all the way to the top, you know. So that makes the um, window less secure. Right. And if you fire something, at, I know all this now. At the time, I yeah. didn't know anything. But you fired the gun. It I fired the, the gun window. at this window, and this window exploded into like a million pieces in the face of Joseph Vaselli. But did not, the bullet didn't actually no, kill, the, hit him. No, it didn't hit him at it all. It hit his wife. Right. And killed her. It, it, it went past, the explosion from the, the, the window, the glass hit him, and he totally disappeared. I thought at the time that I had blew his head off. I literally, he just completely disappeared when I fired this gun. And Miss Priscilla was sitting straight up in her seat looking directly toward the movie screen. She didn't move. She looked undisturbed. She looked uninterested in anything that was going on. And when I fired that that gun, I just, it was just an instant out-of-body experience. Like, first of all, how did, it sounded like a cannon. I never heard this gun make such a, a, a explosion. Hmm. And I'm wondering, how did this happen? This is Marvin. And, we're going to stop it right there because we need to take a break, and I want to give you a break, too. It's a tough story to tell. Okay. When we come back, we're going to find out what happened next, how Ronnie Waters ended up in jail, how Felicia Waters stayed with him, and how he turned his life around after many, many years. Stay with us. We'll continue this amazing story with Ronnie and Felicia Waters right after this break.
All right, we left off our story. Ronnie Waters is 17 years old. He's just fired a gun for the first time, or the night of the first time that he's fired a gun, a pistol. It smashes the window in a drive-in, fills the face of Joseph Purcelli with exploded glass, but kills Deborah Ann Purcelli with one bullet. You're standing there, Ronnie, looking at this, it has to be a surreal moment. I mean, you're, you're not, you had any concept of what you just done? I did. I, like I said, I, I thought that, um, I had blew Joseph Purcelli's head off because when I fired that shot, he completely disappeared. Right. But being that he disappeared, I, immediately started talking to his wife and I was kind of, I guess I was mumbling or whatever. I was like, I, I, this is not how I planned this to happen. I was trying to talk to her and she was just looking straight ahead. She wasn't slumped over. She wasn't visibly bleeding that I could see or any effects of what had happened to her. Um, the reality of, of, of the, of the moment is she was at least unconscious, if not dead, instantly. Right. And I didn't know that at the time. So she was just sitting straight ahead, um, looking out the window. How she, long did you stay in that moment? Did your friends try to pull you away? No, my friends, they were gone. They were going for that car, you know. And um, it was just seconds. It was um, maybe three or four seconds. You know? And then you ran? Then I ran Be- and got in the car too. Um, so the before I ran though, it was another bullet. Um, you said I didn't fire. Uh, I had fired at all targets. Di- right. Yeah, at different different targets, not at a human being. And I knew that it was one um, bullet left in the gun. And for some reason, it was important for me to to not give that gun back with any um, live ammunition in it. So I, I fired that shot, second shot, as I ran towards the hole. You know, just up in the air. Yeah, mm-hmm. there were um, um, people who said that I fired the second shot, to, and that killed Miss Purcelli. You know, I fired one, and then I fired the second shot. That's not true. It's easily to be proved um, that that's not true. First of all, there was only one bullet found and put into evidence, and that's yeah. the bullet that they took out of Miss Purcelli's skull. Right. There was no exit wound for this second bullet if I fired two bullets in it, you know. And if if I had shot first shot and did all this damage to Miss Priscilla's husband and and if she had not been hit or why wouldn't she move? She did not move. She was yeah. undisturbed. Well, she would she would have looked at least looked at me and said, "Please don't shoot me." Right. You know why are right. you doing this? Or she would have went to the aid of her husband. You know who definitely needed some care. Well, for purposes of our story, the damage was done by the first bullet, mm-hmm. no matter what. And mm-hmm. shortly thereafter, you are apprehended mm-hmm. by the police. You face trial. Mm-hmm. It was pretty clear that you did what you did, and you were found guilty. And you were sentenced to life in prison without parole, meaning at 17, you were being sent away for the rest of your life. 
Right. Um, um, life without parole sentence in Michigan is a death sentence. It's just a slow death sentence. Right. You know, you there's no way you only way you can get out of prison on a life without parole sentence is from a governor's signature right. or a retroactive change in the law. When they read that sentence, when you were in the courtroom and they said life in prison without parole, did you ingest that at 17 or 18? Did you really understand what that meant? Um, it was impossible for, for it's impossible for any um, teenager to be able to grasp what that means totally, you know, because you only been on the face of the earth for 17 years. Right. So a life sentence is 17 years, you know, at the most. So for me to say that I grasped what that meant, I, I understand, I understood that they weren't playing with me. I understood that this was a, um, the most severe sentence that they could ever give a person, but I just did not believe that, that they could be that cruel. That um, did you did you try to apologize or say mm-hmm. anything during that process to the family, the Priscilla family? What when as sentencing or during the trial or anything like that? No, I'm never. Um, um, I was advised by my attorney to. My attorney never asked me what happened. He asked me what did I tell him, and he said, "Do not say anything to no one again." Now, in hindsight, if I was able to tell my story and get on the stand, I think that things would have been different. But my attorney said he does all the talking, and I never said anything to anyone until I was convicted. Did you want to say something to the Priscilla family? I always wanted to say something to the Priscilla family because, you know, I felt such uh, agony over what I did to this family. This was a totally innocent family. This was a um I mean, completely innocent. Like I said, I I never seen. It was a dark theater when I was talking to Miss Purcelli, but I didn't never seen her face. You know, a clear. Um, um, and, and yet, I've heard you tell your story once before, and you said that you talk to her all the time now. Oh, in your mind, after, yes, definitely. I have to talk to her in order to come to terms with what I've done, in order to live with myself, because I know that. Um, at least in my mind, that she knows everything that happened. She she could tell the true true story, but she's not here. And when you and talk to her, what are your conversations? My conversations I have, depending on the situation, you know, they vary. But I talk to her. I run things past her. Um, we have conversations about all sorts of different Do you things. you ask her for forgiveness? I've asked her for forgiveness a long time ago. You know, basically that same night when I was standing, when I pulled the trigger I was in my own way asking her for forgiveness when I was telling her this is not what I meant to happen. I'm not, I take complete responsibility uh, for what happened, you know, for taking her life, for destroying her husband's life. But it wasn't my intention. Did you feel in hindsight that a life sentence was a fair, just sentence for what you had done? After all, you had taken a life. Um, She's never coming back. Um, I can understand why some people would think that, but the reason I don't is because it wasn't my intentions, you know, and even though um, I was sentenced to life without parole, it was not my intentions to take this life. So I didn't feel it was a just sentence. However, I could understand why I got that sentence. Right. And it, and it was, 
hard for me to um just deal with myself. You know, I was completely disgusted with me. You know, like I've never been a a, a scholar or anything, but I've always well, you know, I had average intelligence. You know, and I'm like, how could you not know that if you point a gun directly at a person and pull a trigger, uh, something really, really horrible was going to happen. Right. You know. Felicia, let me bring you in here at this point. Um, you told us before you met Ronnie when you were seven years old and you came into the candy store. You reconnected with him in, in high school when you were a teenager. You are about 14 or 15 when he commits this crime and suddenly he is now sent away. What do you as a, I don't even know if you would have called yourself his girlfriend at that time, <laughs> but how, how do you understand what that means that this boy that you're seeing is suddenly being sent away for the rest of his life well um that incident happened on a saturday night slash sunday morning so um monday tuesday rolled around and he wasn't in school and you know back then we didn't have the internet and everything um so i heard some some of the kids talking about him like, hey, do you, you know, did you hear what happened? So it kind of got around word of mouth. So after school, um, I immediately went to work at our store, grabbed a newspaper, and that's how I found out. Um, like Ronnie was saying, when you're that young and, you know, you you hear about someone being convicted of life without parole, have no clue what life is. So the neighborhood that my the, my parents' store was in, as Ronnie had already told you, was not the best of neighborhoods. Um, we had um, all type of drug dealers in the neighborhood. There were a couple of um, they used to call them blind pigs back then. They right, were um, night night places. Yeah, yeah. The you know the gambling facilities. We had prostitutes. Um, the neighborhood alcoholics. The People that used to what they call boost would go to the stores, you know, and, and steal yeah, things and sell them in the neighborhood. So this is the kind of people that were there that lived and surrounded the store. We had even more. But um, I'd ask a couple of, you know, people, they would come in the store. You know, I know they had been incarcerated. You know, how long is life? You know, <laughs> had different answers. Some people say, well. You have to do at least 15 years. Some say, well, you have to do at least 25. So I still didn't know. And um, after his conviction, I found out that life means life. That's the rest of your life. And it was very difficult for me to grasp that because I knew Ronnie. You know, I knew him personally. And just the stories that I read in the newspaper, you know, they were like cold-blooded killer, you know, kills woman in drive-in. And... I'm like, this is not the Ronnie I know. And one of the things that really disturbed me was it was a um, a, a, a prosecutor at the time, and he was on the run for governor. And he was using Ronnie's case to bring back the death penalty. And that truly disturbed me. Mm. Um, I didn't know how to take that. Why didn't you, when you found out that he was convicted of life without parole, why didn't you just move on? Um, I guess it depends on your definition of moving on. I was a teenager in school, so I, you know, I still participated in school. Well, so. I'll, de- I'll, I'll define moving on. 
stop thinking about Ronnie Waters in any way, shape, or form in your life and find another guy or, you know, and just say, well, that was, he was somebody I knew, terrible thing happened to him, I'm moving on. Okay, well, I did date, um, you know, I, I graduated from high school, I went on to college, um, graduated from college, so I did date. However, um, as I said, Ronnie and I were friends. We were friends since I was seven. Um, I knew this person. I, I knew the person that they described in a newspaper, I knew that wasn't him. So Were you, you know, visiting him during that time? Yes. Um, back then, you did not have to be 18. You just had to have your parents' permission, um, a notar- notarized letter to visit, as long as you were accompanied with, by an adult. When that happened to Ronnie, I used to go over to his mom's house, um, and I felt really bad because back then in the newspaper, they would put, you know, along with the cold-blooded killer, they would put his mother's address yeah. the entire right. address that was a common wow. practice that's right so she one she's having to deal with her son you know taking a life she's having to deal with you know her working and trying to um financially be able to come up with money to pay for a lawyer and then she's being you know you have reporters camping out side of her door you know so she's coming in and out from work by herself living there they're camping out. They're following her. They're questioning her. She's having to deal with all of this. Um, so I used to go by and visit her because it was kind of like it kind of helped me to get closer to Ronnie just by, mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't able to. This is before I was able to visit him. I would go and talk to her. She would tell me how he was doing. She would relay messages from me. And she knew truly that I was his friend. She would like, you know, his room was upstairs. Hey, you want to go in his room? You know, and it, it was just his clothes and shoes and things there. But it just kind of made me feel sure. closer to him. So so for how. At what point and during the visits did you decide you were going you were for each other and you were going to get married? OK, well. We've been married now for 17 years, so. About 20 years ago, he did ask to marry me. So 20 years ago, which was uh, only, what, 20 years into the sentence, about, right? Yes. Or 20, 22 years into the sentence. So, yes. So you've been visiting for a lot of years before yes. you guys decided to get married. R- Ronnie, how much did, did Felicia's visits, uh, I mean, what did they do for you? The fact um, that someone had, wasn't giving up on you. Right. It was... um. It's kind of funny, though. Um, her visits meant a lot to me. It, it really did. She was, you know, she was always upbeat. She never um, really asked me a bunch of tough questions like, you know, when are you coming home and all this. You know, she kind of, she never asked me that. You know, she just tried to make things as pleasant as she could for for me when she came to visit. You know, actually, um, I started feeling some kind of way about the life that I was asking her to to live by having a commitment to, with me, you know, for me. And I tried to chase her away. You know, I, I denied visits from her. And, like, look, go oh, on she, with your she's life. She's wasting her time. Yeah, kind of man. Um, you know, after appeal, after appeal failed and stuff, you know, um, feeling sorry for yourself. But I know that, um, you know, she didn't do anything. And 
for her to just have that type of lord loyalty to me, you know, it was just it was too much for me, mm-hmm. you know. I feel I didn't deserve that, and I she definitely didn't deserve the life of journeying to these prisons all over the state of Michigan. You know, that's a really hard life for Absolutely. a person. You know, was there a, a point? And I know that you you were switched around to a lot of different prisons in the state of Michigan. Mm-hmm. Was there a lowest point during your forty years in prison? An absolute bottom that you can remember. Oh, see, um, I'm kind of I'm kind of strange. It's like. I never tried to get too low, you know. I, I can dabble in lotus, but I don't. I can't allow myself to stay there because I knew that I had had to do the time, and you just can't feel a lot of sympathy and um, for yourself, you know. Particularly when you did something as stupid as I did, you know. So I, it's hard for me to feel, um, and it's it's gonna sound strange, but it's hard to me to stay down. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, this is my life, man. Until I figure it out, this is my life, and I can't be down. I have to try things to build a life inside of a prison, inside of a world that most people can't imagine. Did you, know? you succeed in doing that? I did. I did because um, I just figured it out, you know, um, when I could get a Sunday free press and read you know, that was the best thing ever because, you know, it had a big sports section in it and had so many different... I, I'm familiar with that sports yeah, section. Yeah, I've been following you for a long time. Yeah, from, from inside and outside. Huh? Yeah, I was following you when you were a pure sports writer. Uh-huh. You know, yeah, you know, yeah, that was a long time ago. Yeah, a long time ago. Oh, you didn't do anything but sports. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's when I say pure, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I found different ways to... to, to when I first came to prison, everybody told me that prison was, you know, what to expect. And it was all the horrible things that you see on TV, all the murderers and um, the murdering and killing and the raping. And the sti- it was just a really bad place. And when I came, went into that system, that was my mindset. You know, this is my life, man. You know, you're going to either get with it or it's going to destroy you. And I, I didn't want to be destroyed. So I had a mindset like, Whatever, when I turn this corner, whatever happens, it happens. I'm going to have to deal with it. And all type of horrible things happened when I turned that corner. And I dealt with those situations. You had to fight for your life at some point. Had in to. There. I, had to, I touched the ground. Literally, time they took me off the bus, they were waiting on us. You know, it's a bunch of predators who line up and they check. They call us fish, you know. And they check, you know, they know we're young and we're scared and, and, they take advantage of a lot of uh, young kids, you know. And at that time, I was um, young, but I looked even younger, you know. And and I knew from all the warnings from um, um, guards and and older people in the county jail what to expect. So I was just, I mean, it's not been feeling sorry for yourself or anything. It's just this was going to be my life, but... As I, when I got to prison, I started seeing different variations of what prison was. I used to see people walking towards the building with with books in their hand and stuff. I'm like, nobody told me about this. I didn't know that you could go to school in prison. I didn't know that you could go to college in prison. I didn't know that you could take vocational trades in prison. They only told me about all the horrors 
that was going to happen to me, you know, when I touched down so in Gladiator cob- School. You cobbled together a life as yeah. you could. Yeah, when I figured out that um, um, that I could go to school, man, I I, I just gravitated towards that, and that was that was my lifeline. When did I, you ever, while you were uh, incarcerated, did you try to get a message, write a letter, or anything like that, to the Purcelli family? Um, I've I've never did any like thing like that because that's against the law in Michigan. You know, a lot of people don't know that, but it's against the law for me to have any contact, for me to try to contact them in any ways. That was against the law. If somebody from that family might be listening to mm-hmm. this broadcast right now, and it's possible, what would you want to say to them? I would love to to not necessarily say anything, answer all their questions. I know that they would have questions on, you know, did my loved ones suffer? Did they beg for their life? Did why did you do it? Um, I've never been able to to explain any of this, or or or, and I know it would be tough talking to the people that you know that I did all this damage to that family. But I would love the opportunity for them to ask me all the tough questions for as long as they would like to grill me, like to. Uh, I know they're inquisitive. I'm about, sure the biggest question or the funneled question at some point or another would be why. Mm-hmm. Why and, did you do it? How would you answer that from the Purcelli family? And and the thing about that is that when you you ask me why, I have to tell you that it was not my intentions. I just wanted to scare them. I just wanted to to retaliate um, against them for that perceived wrong, but not. Um, and dealing. if they, and if they said why did someone not wanting to roll down a window to give you a light for a cigarette, mm-hmm. make you angry and think you needed to teach them a lesson, how would you answer them? And 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 I would tell them that it's, it's, it, it's not going to make sense to them. It's not. It doesn't make sense to me. I would tell you that in my immature um, uh, um, mind that this was justification for me to fire that gun and scare them to death. And I know sitting here as a mature thinking man that that's not going to make sense to anybody who has common sense. But that's what you have to say. That's that, what all you have but, to say. I want to stop you right there. We're going to take one more segment if you guys can hang around. Can you do it? Yes. Yes. Because uh, I want to talk about what's happened now and how you were able through a change in the law to become free and what you have learned from your freedom. And I also want to open up the phone lines at 877-44-MITCH. You've heard this incredible story of Ronnie and Felicia Waters. If you want to join in, please feel free to do that. We'll come back after this. All right, right back to wrap up this this rather arresting uh, story. Pardon the word arresting, but uh, Ronnie Waters, Felicia Waters, Ronnie, when he was 17 years old, uh, committed an awful crime, uh, shot a bullet, through a window, at a drive-in. Inside the car were a man named Joseph Purcelli and Deborah Ann Purcelli. The bullet uh, missed Mr. Purcelli, who was actually sitting on the driver's side, but struck Deborah Ann Purcelli and killed her. Ronnie Waters was convicted of first-degree murder, although, as you've heard him tell, very, very uh, detailed and 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 and. and eloquently, a story of a 17-year-old kid, the first time he's carrying a gun, 
has a perception of what a gun can do and the perception is wrong and never intends to kill anybody or even hurt anybody, just scare somebody, instead is uh, convicted on first-degree murder, sent away for life in prison without parole at age 17. We've heard about the time in prison. We've heard about how 20 years in, Felicia, who remained not only a good friend, but ultimately uh, married Ronnie while he was still in prison. Didn't know, have any idea that he was ever going to go out, got, get out. So at that time, Felicia, I mean, you guys agreed to get married. You basically were agreeing to be married to a man who would never, as far as you were concerned, never, never be free to be with you. That's correct. Takes an incredible, an incredible, uh, well, love is the obvious noun, but um, I think it's even deeper than love in some way. What? How would you describe what it takes to make that kind of a commitment? Um, some people would call it faith. Um, I didn't believe that he would spend the rest of his life in prison, even though on paper it said that. Um, just having that faith, just that small amount of faith, knowing and believing that he would be free. Um, I work with um, several different organizations to help him seek freedom. Um, some like the ACLU and um, NAACP and other organizations. Um, anytime I heard any news or if any anytime Ronnie heard any news about um, juvenile lifers, or a possibility of, of freedom, we were on it. Mm-hmm. And in 2012, one of those pieces of news actually came to be very significant because a case was decided that uh, it was Miller versus Alabama and it changed the law regarding juveniles sentenced to life without parole and said that you couldn't do that to juveniles. And at 17, you were technically a juvenile, right? That was 2020, mm-hmm. uh, although it took four years or so before it began to people thought that maybe it would apply here. Um, do you remember when you, 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 how you reacted when you first heard that there was actually a chance sure. that you could be getting out? Sure. Um, in the state of Michigan, um, um, the ACLU and different organizations, SATO, and they had kind of prepped us that this might happen. And we were very studious about all things the Supreme Courts. And we knew this case was up there. And, and, um, the group of juvenile lifers at the facility that I was at, you know, we um, we were waiting on this decision to come down, the ruling, you know. And when it came down, it was like a, a celebration, you know, like, you know, a lot of the, um, the um, prison population were happy for us, you know, and it was like a celebration. You know, we were running around congratulating each other and, yeah, we're going to get this opportunity, you know, just so much hope in the prison at that time, you mm-hmm. know that we would actually be able to um, petition the court for... Actually, um, they didn't ban life without parole. They only said that you couldn't give them to make it mandatory, you know, meaning that you had to have a hearing. You have to be you able had to, to... fight for your freedom. Right. You had to be able to prove that you had redeeming qualities, that you... And what were you able to prove that ultimately got you out? Um... I was able to prove that I wasn't the worst of the worst, you know, that, um, that, as I said, I had some redeeming qualities and that comes from 
um, my record of going to school, getting um, my education, getting every vocational trade that the state of Michigan offered at that time um, by being a, a mentor and a role model to other prisoners in prison and just being what some people would call a model prisoner. So I was able to prove that I had some redeeming qualities and the judge decided that life without life without parole was not appropriate the in your case. Appropriate sentence for, for me. And you were how old at the time when you finally came out? Oh, when I finally came out, I think I was 57 years old. You yeah, went I, in when you were 17. Went in when I was 17. So you, you literally became an adult in prison. Right. Yeah. Lost your 20s, lost your 30s, yeah. lost your middle age of 40s and 50s, or most of it, yeah. and came out at 57 yeah. when most people are thinking about retiring. Um, yeah. Lost. Starting to. I, I don't really look at it. I lost that, though. You know, I know that I, I right. did, but um, I think I was, you know, I had built a life for myself in prison, you know, a life that was, believe it or not, fulfilling because I was able to be a mentor, be helpful to, to a lot yeah, of people. Yeah, and players. I want to point out that you did. I mean, we, we could spend a lot of time talking about it. We don't have it. Mm-hmm. You were involved in every kind of group in in, in prison, uh, helping young prisoners, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, being a mentor, as you say. I mean, as much as someone can be a, a good person behind bars, that is what you attempted to do. And mm-hmm. I don't want people who are listening to us here, because I know nothing that can be said and even this hour and 15 minutes that we're taking is ever going to bring back Deborah Ann Purcelli is ever going to make things better for the Purcelli family and I'm sure there are people who are listening who are saying why is Mitch Album even having these people on uh, you know why doesn't he have the Purcelli family on to talk about it and 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 and, and why should this man have one day of freedom you know uh, when they're not getting anybody back and 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 why was he let out and I mean what would be your response to that? If if if, if that's that's a great question, and the answer would be is that um, kids aren't the worst thing that they ever done in life. You know, kids are different. Kids have the ability to change, to transform, to become better. You know, to get it right. And and if you say that anyone who was sentenced to life without parole as a juvenile should spend the rest of their life, you, you're basically saying that kids can't change. and Can't redeem. Yeah, they, they, can't, they can't become better. They can't contribute to society. And we all know that that's not true. You're not the same person that you were when you were 17. You don't think the same. You don't, you know, you don't rationalize, rationalize, rationalize. things the same. And... And if you tell, if you say that, that I didn't deserve a second chance, you know, after all the things that I've tried to do to express to people or to show people that I'm a I'm a different man, then you're saying that you're giving up on the kids, you know. Yeah. And I knew that I was going to be punished for what I did, you know. I expected that time I pulled the trigger. I like, yeah, man, you you out of there, you know. So I never tried to escape punishment part of it you know because that's how that's what our society believes in and and a part of me believes that i should have been punished but to say that i should never again sit foot in, in the free society world. yeah that's that's something that didn't sit 
well with me, you know. Felicia, I can, I can definitely understand why people do believe that. Yeah. Well, and you've said that many times. You've said, "I know why. I know why people be angry. I know why people would say you." And I, I admire the fact that you're acknowledging this other side, you know, uh, because in our world today, too many people just never acknowledge the other side, no matter what the other side is. There's only one side of things, and that's it. And it's possible to say, I don't agree with the other side, but let me at least acknowledge the other side exists. We're in a world now where we don't even want to say the other side exists. It's, they don't have the right to exist because if they believe that, then they shouldn't even have the right. Felicia, when Ronnie was actually let free, which I imagine was the first moment that you got to hug and kiss your husband, your husband, mm-hmm. at least without maybe <laughs> people around without guards, without the brief embrace. It was one. Yeah. Um, it was one guard when I would go visit. Of course, you know, upon greeting and leaving, you're able to, you know, hug, like hug. And, and kiss this um, one guard every single time. He started yelling, brief embrace, brief embrace. He said it several times, and it was really annoying. So so this was, a, yeah. so the first time you got to have a non-brief embrace, yes. what was that, what was that, that was like? That was wonderful. Wow. Where was it? Um, oh, it was up, up on me um, picking him up, you know, just, you know. It was just, um, it was actually right out of, of the movies pickup, yeah, the drive up in the car and, <laughs> and the door really opens. It was really weird, you know, because, you know, I had talked to a couple of um, people that had been incarcerated and, you know, just trying to get a feel for what to expect. And, you know, they were like, you know, he's it's, it's going to take some time, you know, he's going to come home, he's going to be up all night, you know, he's not going to be able to sleep, you know. Did that all night, that happen? He came home. And, you know, I had just bought a brand new mattress. He got in the bed. And I'm like, oh, you're a little nervous. Oh, he's not going to be able to go to sleep. Five seconds later, you could just hear. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay, so they were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, about the sleeping so, part, yeah, anyhow. Yeah, so he um, really adjusted well to coming home. Um, I mean, I used to send pictures of the inside and outside of the house and everything. So he kind of knew where everything was, you know, and I had a honeydew list for him when he came home. Oh, too. That's so good. yeah, he, 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 he's finished it, but yeah, I had Took all a while. Yeah. Um, what was the hardest thing for you after 40 years in prison to adjust to Ronnie? Um, a little thing. I don't want to um, seem like I'm some type of super man. Cause I'm definitely not, but I tend to just, I, I can't, I don't remember what was hardest. Oh, maybe, oh, yes, I do. It's, the phone was the hardest thing. Oh, the oh. technology, man. Um, I still yeah. have trouble with that. That's, don't yeah. worry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was, that was what, what was giving me the most problem is the technology that, yeah. you know, remembering passwords and things like that, you know. Have you run into anybody since you've been out who has confronted you on your freedom and say, like, know you don't deserve to be out here um i have not i mean i'm sure that those people are out 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 here but i have not and tell us what the two of you are doing because i think this is the most important thing now that you have your freedom you didn't come out and say okay i am never dealing with anybody in the prison criminal justice system period, I'm going to find an island somewhere or whatever. I'm going to live it up. I'm going to drink the rest of my life. I'm going to... That isn't what you, either one of you have chosen to do with your lives. 
uh, when you do as, as much time as I've done, you know, most of your um, your your acquaintance, your your friends are, are people who you li- left behind, you know. And I've seen quite a few people come home who promised to, you know, be assistance to the ones that were left behind. And almost always, um, they don't. They don't. You know, they. they but don't. you are. But I try to be, you know, it's, it can be overbearing Tell sometimes. Tell us what you're but, doing. Um, right now I'm working for an organization called Safe and Just Michigan. And what we do is criminal justice reform. We do that by trying to change laws and policies in Lansing that affect the criminal justice system. So we're trying to transform that system um, through changing laws. So I'm a community engagement specialist, and we have a campaign to in life without parole for all juveniles. And a lot of people thought that that happened in 2012, but it did not. It's still, um, the court still can give that sentence out to people, you know, but we feel that that sentence should be taken off the book. In over 26 states in Michigan, they have banned life without the possibility of parole in those states. Um, conservative states like South Dakota and, um, on Wyoming and Texas and West Virginia, they ban life without parole. But in the state of Michigan, that sentence is still still being served, mm-hmm. being given out to people. And Felicia, tell us what you're involved in now. Um, quite a few things with uh with Ronnie. Uh when when he was first released, um I told him, I said, Well you didn't have to work, you know, take some time to, you know, get to adjust, you know, take six months or so. Within four weeks, Ronnie was working for an organization called Michigan Liberation. Um, he was canvassing for that election that year, and they kind of kept track of how many doors he knocked on, and they said he knocked on over 1,500 doors within um, less than two months. So, of course, you know, I have a full-time job. Monday through Friday, but on the weekends I would work along with Ronnie with Michigan Liberation. We've also worked with, um, I've also helped him at Safe and Just Michigan. Um, I had a fellowship for the summer and that entailed doing the Clean Slate Initiative where um, men and women who may have been convicted some time ago have an opportunity to clear their record. So I've been um, assisting um, the expungements. Yes, with the expungements. Thank you. So you're working to help people who are in similar situations or who are doing because you've lived it. So I want to thank you for coming in. Um, I heard Ronnie speak uh, of all places and Felicia uh, at a synagogue on Yom Kippur where uh, a rabbi in the area had a very interesting idea about since it's a day of forgiveness, wouldn't this be an interesting story? And I, I, I'm sure that was an interesting experience. I don't know how many synagogues you've been in on the high holidays, Ronnie, but... Uh, zero. Uh, zero, <laughs> yeah, but that was interesting. And I, I was very moved when I heard your story, and I think, you know, without passing judgment on any of it, I just think too many people don't ever get a chance to really talk to someone who's been through this and to hear you tell what was in your mind when you were 17 and we just read things and we just decide, Oh, guilty or innocent or whatever. You know, we, we have three facts, three lines, three sentences, and that's enough. We can make it. And suddenly when you get to know a human being and you really hear their story, perhaps 
story flushes out and people's minds can be changed. Um, I want to thank you for the bravery that it took to come and, and tell that story and, and know that there are people listening that don't necessarily agree and there are people listening who cheer for you mm-hmm. and, and, and still be willing to share it. I think we're all the better for it, for having heard it. And uh, I'm glad that we had a chance to have you guys in. Yes. And uh, sorry that we went over our... <laughs> I told them yeah. that they would oh. be out of here about a half an hour ago. No, that's but, quite all right. Um, yeah, we're always looking to to try to be uplifting, man. Try to show people that, you know, because I know that if I succeed out here, then somebody else would get the chance also. So so we're always looking for chances to, to let people know about what we're trying to do and how there are other and people. And is it that, safe to say you want to make something of the rest of your life? Definitely. I just I just want to try to shed light on a lot of the good people that I left behind, you know, because they deserve the same opportunities that I got. You know, yeah. I'm not extraordinary in any shape, shape, any, any way. I'm not. There's so many people that can come out here and be good citizens, can be contributing citizens that we just warehousing. And I just want to shed light on that so they can get opportunity also. Well, I'm glad you did. I'm glad you were both able to come. Felicia, it's been a pleasure getting to know you a little bit. Thank you. Thank you for spending some time with us. And um, I'm glad to know that the free press is still read on occasion (laughs) on Sundays somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe the last place. (laughs) But there it is. Uh, Ronnie and Felicia Waters have been our guests here on 760 WJR. We'll take a brief break, and then we'll come back and try to squeeze everything that we didn't do for the rest of the show in the last half hour. Back with more after this.